Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, a show where two cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And we have a very special and solemn Badge Boys edition. This is a Fallen Officer edition. We're going to be talking about David Glasser. End of Watch, sadly, was in Phoenix, Arizona, May 19th, 2016. We have in studio his widow, Christine Glasser. We're going to be talking to Kristen and also two officers who were there during that horrific gun battle in a very solemn, special Fallen Officer edition. Then in a cop talk, I'm going to talk to Kristen in regards to a foundation she created in honor of her husband. She continues to give to the community and an incredible sacrifice. Then the awkward transition to the last segment where we're going to talk about heroic headlines, stupid suspect stories, and of course, Jason's inspirational clothes. So stay tuned and lay witness to the heroism of fallen officer David Glasser. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the, I moment. Remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association in this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back. Again, we have a very special but solemn fallen officer special uh, regarding Phoenix Police Officer David Glasser. On May 19th, 2016, Police Officer David Glasser succumbed to gunshots wounds sustained after responding to a burglary at the home near the intersection of 51st Avenue and Baseline Road. The homeowner had called 911 to report that his son was stealing items from the home. As officers arrived on the scene, they encountered the son sitting in a van in the driveway. The subject immediately opened fire on the officer, striking Officer Glasser. Other officers returned fire and and killed the subject. Officer Glasser was transported to a local hospital where in critical condition and unfortunately succumbed to his injuries that following day. Officer Glasser had served with the Phoenix Police Department for 12 years and was assigned to the Neighborhood Enforcement Team, known as NET. He's survived by his wife and two children. In studio with us today is Kristen. Kristen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I tell you, first, you know, there's so much sadness involved in this, obviously. But, you know, when you go to the funerals and you go to the wakes and people start talking about the, the funding stories. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know David. But watching the newsreels and watching the news, and there was a huge outpouring from the community from the Cardinals organization. I mean, so many people just absolutely loved David. Can you kind of paint a picture of David? Can you tell him about the husband, the father? Um, well, you, you got a lot of it. He was very, very funny. Um, I know it was said about him a lot that he was larger than life. And he Big really, guy, too. <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, but just, um, just the kindest of hearts, um, hilarious and full of adventure and life and um my best friend i mean we did everything together when i think about david and the sacrifice literally he made that was and jason talks about like a lot about this and jason if you want to weigh in please do sir um we as police officers you know we sign on the dotted line we 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 knew what we signed up for uh the children didn't uh many times the wife doesn't 
Um, you know, they're married beforehand. It's, it's the dream, it's the love, it's a passion. Can you talk a little bit about that love of community that, that David had that made him want to be a police officer? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think, you know, we met when we were very young, um, started dating when we were about 18. Um, but he has always served his community, and we met through church events and um, had gone on mission trips and stuff together. So it was nothing new that I knew he had that in his heart. Uh, knew that it was his, his dream to be a police officer from the moment I met him. So um, kind of knowing what I'm getting into, but not really knowing not what really. you're getting into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't imagine for a million years that, that, that phone call, and I, I'm not even going to go down that road. Uh, tell me about the father. Oh, he's an amazing father. Um, I think that's the part that hurts the worst because um, they didn't get him for very long. Um, cause God, he would have been amazing with them. Um, he just was playful and present. Um, he really knew what was important. So when he was home with us, he turned off work. We hardly heard about it. And it was all about family and kids and what fun we were going to have together. So. It, truly amazing man. I've, I've yet to hear a single word derogatory. Everything is so positive. Um, big, bigger than life because he's both, you know, he's a huge guy. Yeah. He was a big guy. Um, got on the net squad. Um, can you tell us about the time when he was applying for the net squad? And again, for those listening from an outside agency, uh, that's our basically walking beat for the precinct. It's the neighborhood enforcement team. And when I was on, we rode bicycles, and I had to get, learn how to ride a bicycle again. Um, can you talk a little bit about David wanting to get into that, that assignment? Yeah, I mean, he, um, he loved police work. He loved being on the streets. He never really had a desire to go into any position that would take him out of that. Um, but I know when the net squad positions opened up, he was very excited about that. He spent many hours studying and talking to people to make sure that he was prepared for that. But um, I was excited for him to be able to do something different, do a specialty where he really got to focus on the parts of the work that he enjoyed the most. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about proactive police work and um, opposed to chasing the radio. I was really good at chasing radio. Maybe it's because I wasn't good at proactive police work. I don't know, but I <laughs> love chasing the radio. Um, but I'm going to bring on someone uh, that understands um, that proactiveness, a uh, um, field training sergeant uh, with field training officers. Uh, with us now is Joe Roberts, retired sergeant with the Phoenix Police Department. Joe, welcome to the show, my friend. Darren, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, um, can you talk a little bit as it relates to that assignment that um, David was in, in terms of um, what they did, why he might be responding to this hot call, and then, if you would, transition into that hot call? Okay, sure. Um, well, uh, to start with, I obviously was the uh, field training supervisor, which, for those who don't know, that is the supervisor who takes the uh, police trainees from the academy and kind of teaches them how to do the job um as part of that we were just responding to normal regular radio traffic when people would call in um as opposed to david and his group where they did the neighborhood enforcement they were a lot more specialized and they would kind of respond to any any trouble areas you had in a neighborhood and they kind of had a little more time to work those problems so as field training supervisor, I had uh, a whole bunch of trainees working for me. I think on the day this happened, I had eight trainees working and about 10 field training officers. Um, the call came in. It was about 2.30, in the afternoon. And like you had said, it was a burglary of a residence. Um, some of the details on it were the, the father the homeowner had called us and said, hey, my son stole our vehicle yesterday. He's now broken into my house. He's stolen my handgun, and he's threatening me via text message. So a lot of what we did, uh, we had Dad kind of meet us around the corner, and then a couple of my officers had sat met with Dad, kind of got all the information, figured out whose son was and what was going on. Uh, the dad had actually allowed us to kind of look at his phone, see some of the text messages. And there were messages in there where 
dad was telling him, hey, I'm calling the police, and son was kind of responding back with, well, I don't really care. Um, so we, we kind of knew it was a high-risk or a higher-risk situation because the son just didn't really seem to be that concerned that he was calling the police. So we met with Dad. We, uh, after we'd gotten all the info from Dad, we formulated a plan to go and approach the house. And at the time, I think I had probably seven or eight officers with me responding. And, and our main goal at that point, uh, from a tactical standpoint, was to get the house secured, try and make contact with the son. If we could get him to come out and give up, great, then we'd take him into custody and no problem. And if it seemed like it was going to escalate beyond that, then we end up calling our FAU, our SWAT, and they kind of take over and then take over negotiations and things like that. So um, we formulated our plan. Uh, Dave and his partner actually showed up kind of near the end, and I, after we briefed all the troops on what their assignments were, uh, like I say, Dave and his partner showed up. I kind of gave them a, I'm going to call it a quick briefing. We kind of talked through, and I let them know where I wanted them and what I wanted them to do. Um, while this was going on, probably another guest you'll hear, uh, Chris Hoyer, uh, was out, and he was in an unmarked vehicle, kind of plain clothes, where he could sit and watch the house for us and let us know if there was any movement at the house, if anything untoward was going on, or if the, if he happened to see our suspect kid come out with a gun, that would have been good info to know. So uh, after we'd gotten the plan, we all kind of got in what they call a big convoy of cars and headed over to the house. Um, I was at the rear of the convoy. Uh, Dave and his partner were the second to the last vehicle in the convoy. Uh, as we approach the house, officers start maneuvering their vehicles, putting them in positions where they can kind of sit behind cover and uh, operate as safely as is possible. Um, Dave and his partner uh, realized that the stolen vehicle that the suspect had stolen the day before was sitting in the driveway, so they took up the position directly behind that vehicle to block it in and keep it from leaving. Um, as they do that, the suspect, who unknown to us, was sitting in the driver's seat of the vehicle, uh, turned and from the driver's seat fired several rounds back at Dave and his partner, um, obviously striking Dave once in the leg and then once um, fatally in the head. Um, Dave immediately drops to the ground, struck. Uh, other officers on the scene obviously open fire and neutralize that threat immediately. Um, then some, what I'm going to call less than fun things happen, uh, because I saw what was going on, went to get on the radio, and our radios dropped out on us. <sighs> Quit working. Uh so we couldn't even get help and resources in at the time. Uh, I think everybody on the scene realized the gravity of it. I know I certainly realized the gravity of it because when where I was in the stack of cars, I could tell that Dave had been hit and it wasn't a good thing. He wasn't moving. Um, we started, or I started, I guess, trying to get some folks come up and render aid to Dave once we kind of knew that the suspect was out and no longer firing at us. Um, I hollered, and uh, one of my FTOs and another young OIT uh, came up, and we began extricating Dave. We actually moved him back behind a vehicle that was there to kind of get him out of the line of fire and start rendering aid. Um, and one of the ironic parts of that was the the young trainee that came up to help rescue Dave weighed about 120 pounds. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dave was a good 230-plus. Dave was a big guy. 
Um, and this young kid with very little training came up and is trying desperately to carry Dave back and out of the line of fire. Um, very, in my opinion, heroic. Absolutely. Uh, we started trying to administer CPR to Dave because while we were up at the car, I had actually checked and realized, like, Dave didn't have a pulse, and we were needing to start some CPR and uh, start some life-saving measures quickly. So uh, we did. And, again, this this young trainee with uh, barely weeks on the street uh, started doing CPR and uh, started attempting life-saving efforts. Uh, we realized at that point, Again, we still don't have any radio communications. Uh, they've been able, officers were able to get out that we had the radio code for a really, really bad day came out, but that was literally the last transmission that came out on the radio. So um, I'm trying to get resources there, and none of that's working. Um, I realize we need to get Dave back and out to an area where the fire department can in, come in and render aid. So at that point, I make the call that we need to get Dave into a car, um, which turned out to be my patrol vehicle. Um, I think it actually took three, maybe four of us to get Dave loaded in the car. Again, he's not a small man. He was very large. Um, So we put Dave in the back of my car, still working, doing CPR the entire way. Um, At some point, Dave's partner jumps into the car with us. We speed back to the nearest major intersection we could get to where I knew he was clear of the line of fire out of harm's way and we could get fire into him. Uh, Finally, through I think an act of God, our radio started working again and we were able to get the fire department responding. I mean, I think they were already, but or at least I hope they were already um, because they were on scene within probably a couple minutes and again, we're we're working very diligently to keep Dave alive at this point. Um, I recall even standing there at his car door talking to him, um, trying to convince him to stay with us. Um, like I say, then once once we got the fire department on scene, they immediately took over very quickly uh, realizing the gravity of the situation, realizing that, hey, we need to do something fast, and they immediately transported Dave to uh, to the hospital. Um, I know they were able to keep him alive for quite a while, um, which enabled him to be able to be an organ donor and help out in some other ways like that. Um, and that was basically the rundown of the situation, I guess. Joe, I have a couple of questions that I want to transition to uh, uh, Chris, but I got to ask you, uh, first of all, what was the name of that, that trainee? I just want to put, because I agree with you, that was heroism, uh, because running over there, uh, not understanding tactics as we do with you know, 20, 30 years on, uh, what a daunting measure and putting himself in harm's way. And then, you know, the, the, this, the physicality of it, you know, uh, I, and I can feel his pain, you know, I'm like a buck 50. So uh, I feel his, you know, to do that was just truly true heroism. So I'd love to know his name. Absolutely. That young man was Richard Pena. Um, he no longer works with the city, but uh, at least when he worked uh, with me and on that scene, he performed like, uh, any veteran officer would, um, which, again, for a kid with just a couple of months on the street was phenomenal. Um, the things he did, um, several of the other officers out there, uh, obviously Richard couldn't carry Dave himself, several of the other officers out there um, pitched in, helped out, were doing CPR and just performing like heroes. And speaking of heroes, I kind of make sure I understand as well as, well as the audience that this these life-saving measures were done in a time where you still have a threat. You don't know what's going on in that vehicle, the stolen vehicle, where he's already shot at police officers. Am I correct with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Life-saving measures for Dave were started within 
probably 30 seconds of the initial volley of rounds, um, which for people that don't understand, 30 seconds is not a lot of time, and not a lot of time when you're having to rush into literally into the line of fire. Um, you know, and every officer out there, not one of them hesitated to do what needed to be done. Um, I, I say it even now, guys out there, save my life, because by the time I yelled, I need somebody up here, which I think might have been my exact words, and I probably wasn't nice about saying it at the time, I literally had two officers at my side right next to Dave, and we're talking, there was still smoke hanging in the air, um, maybe bullet casing still hitting the ground. So, wow. yeah. Wow. That's a uh, perfect place for us to take a break, um, kind of regroup, um, have a, uh, a sponsor. And then we're going to return um, with Joe as well as Chris Hoyer to talk about some more details from another perspective of that shooting. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. I'll never forget, never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. My first call ever as a member of the National Guard. When we got to the armory, they briefed us on the wildfires. They were getting dangerously close to homes. Helicopters were going out to drop water on the fires. Guys in the unit were preparing for firefighting with local fire crews. At that moment, I got my first taste of just how important the Guard is to my community. See how the Guard can be an important part of your life at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Wow, that was uh, powerful. Uh, thank you, Joe, for um, providing us a detailed account. Uh, as horrific and sad as it made me. Um, Can I just say one thing? Yes, please, Robin. I have to say this. Being a widow, sitting yes. across from another I'm widow, listening right next to, to her. that. Yeah. Kristen, you are so damn brave to be in here. Thank you for being a part of this and sharing your story. And we're going to talk to uh, Kristen uh, after we talk with Chris because she's done something as difficult as that must have been. As these three years have been, um, continuing this, she has this wonderful foundation in his name. And uh, I just can't applaud her enough for that. Uh, Joe, um, I know you weren't done, my friend. If you could continue and uh, uh, tell us some. if you will, as the dust settles. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say a couple other things I wanted to add. Um, a lot of the officers out there on the scene probably experienced a lot of trauma of their own because um, once once our radios dropped out, it was kind of some of the unknowns that happened out there. Is there were officers on the back side of that house that you know had been tasked with, hey, I want you to go back there and make sure this bad guy doesn't come running out they had no idea what was going on at the front of the house um those those guys that were back there all they do is they hear a volley of gunfire and they have no idea what's going on um and sadly half of the police department at the time kind of got the same treatment in that if they were paying attention listen to the radio in a few of the radio transmissions where people get out, you know, if you're Phoenix or just about any officer, they know the triple nine comes out. That's a bad day. And the triple nine actually comes out and you can hear bullets in the background firing off. And then everything, the radio went dead. No one had any idea what was going on. And, you know, it, it almost was very traumatic for the probably hundreds of officers that were working at that time, listening to all that go on and not knowing how or what needed to be done with that. So there was there was a lot of things, and uh, again, a lot of things went on behind the scene, and unfortunately I, I knew about half of what went on because I was the supervisor and kind of the quarterback, and I think Chris will probably touch on this. He and I both, you know, um, felt 
horribly responsible um, because it was, you know, in my case, it was a scene and I was the guy in charge of it. And in theory, you're never supposed to have an officer die on your scenes because you train hard, you work hard, and you try and keep that from happening. And unfortunately, in this scene, despite all of our training and despite all of our tactics, bad day happened. And I just, I I was going to, I guess, touch on that a little bit, is, is that this turned out to be a bad day for so many people in so many ways. And, and like I say, as bad as it was, a lot of people's training kicked in and kept it from being any worse. Having been in a shooting myself and having the radio go out on me as well when I was putting up my uh, 998 um, police involvement shooting, um, I still suffer, um, you know, from PTSD in regards to that incident. I can't even imagine uh, having seen an officer fallen. And in my situation, I fell um, uh, trying to re- recoup and get cover, and officers saw me go down, thought I had got shot. Um, how, how are you doing today with that PTSD? And I like to refer to it as PTSD, not PTSD, because it's not a disorder. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to go with it. It's, it's PTSD. Um, you know, today I'm doing okay. Good. But uh, there was probably about a year after this scenario where I can tell you that I wasn't doing okay. Um, luckily for me, I've got a really good support system um, and a lot of really good friends, a lot of them that have probably been on your podcast, <laughs> maybe like Julie Warniak and people like that that were on last week. Great that people. I do when I need those that help um and all that but yeah the the pts that came as a result of this incident uh, for me was not easy and was not not easily dealt with um but like I say luckily with some good professional help and a lot of really good unprofessional help um it's it's worked out okay to the point where now i think i'm okay and can at least talk about it and kind of tell the story without breaking down anymore so that's that's a good thing (laughs) you know on that note uh that is a good thing and i know uh chris hoyer has been able to talk about it and uh, i think that my small um, conversations with chris uh i get the feeling that that's helped him so if you could kind of weigh in here chris and tell us about uh um, your involvement and what you remember of that horrific horrific day yeah absolutely um if i may i'd like to start with if it's okay to dedicate this episode dave absolutely because uh, uh, this is by far touched more people than i ever thought it would and myself in more ways than i ever even imagined um i didn't really know dave that well to be honest with you um and you mentioned earlier that you know you've never heard anything bad about him well i got one thing to say that he was a pain in the butt because he would never let you do anything <laughs> so, <laughs> he would he would not let you take dispo on a call he would take the drugs he's like hey you're getting up in, at four o'clock right yeah it's three thirty. well i'll take all your stuff hey chris thank you, you for know, that because you gave uh kristen a huge <laughs> smile so thank you for that <laughs> you know, so you know i mean i loved working with him but it was like man come on let me do something here so I, I've been listening to you guys talk and trying to figure out where, where I start, and I, I really don't have a clue. Um, so I'm just going to start with the, the day of the call itself. And for the folks that worked around me that know how I worked, I was labeled in three separate precincts to resident ship magnets. So it was uh, <laughs> it was no surprise that I was I was the first one on the scene, which was very, the very beginning of where things started to fall apart for me later on after this thing happened. So. I was out there, I calculated listening to the radio traffic multiple times later on. Uh, I was out there for, by myself for about 13 minutes watching the house. And I got on the net team in 2002. And so I've been on net team for quite a while. So this is what I did. You know, this is exactly what I was, what I was trained to do, what you guys hired me to do. And what um, Lieutenant Tom Van Doren, who's another big supporter of Dave as well, he actually called on the radio and asked for a plain clothes unit to go down there. And... I was working on something else, and I jumped in the car and flew down there as quickly as I could. And I was worried that I was going to get down there too late, that I wasn't going to be able to get, you know, get a piece of the action, if you if you want to call it that, which is a really bad way to say it. But it's how we feel. Um, 
Well, that's what I wanted. I yeah. wanted to be there to, to yeah. help. And that was the secondary part of where I started to fail because my the first thought that I had was it was my responsibility. And I know Joe and I went back and forth about this. Who who was the more responsible for letting this happen? And each of us have our own little demons on that part in, in itself. And for me, being out there watching this house, knowing now later that the guy was sitting in that car, you know, waiting for us the whole time and I never saw him. That was that was probably the hardest thing for me to get over. And then, you know, equally as difficult was knowing that because, you know, even though I've been, I've been talked out of it for the most part about failing on that portion, you know, I failed to not find the guy. It cost David his life. And, you know, I've struggled with that for the entire last three years, which I can't believe it's been three years. I swear it just seems like it just happened. Um, but the fact is, you know, I was out there watching and, I've been involved with some pretty high-end critical incidents before. I've been involved with uh, three prior shootings, including one other rifle shooting on the street. And so when everything started to happen, I got out of my car, and it was kind of just sort of a fat, dumb, and happy, okay, it's just another scene kind of a thing. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's another guy that's suicidal. I'll shoot up with the cops. Okay, well, we get these kind of calls, especially in Maryville, all the time, right? I mean, this is pretty much a weekly call for us. Not that I was complacent, never been, um, but I get out of the car, I got my rifle, I'm all, I'm all loaded and ready to go, and I think Murphy jumped in right in the middle, right when I got right in the middle of the street where there was no place for me to go and no cover, that's when the gunfire erupted, <laughs> and I unloaded, I, I estimate, I'm not even sure, somewhere between seven to ten rounds of rifle into the guy's car, and when I got interviewed by the investigators later, they asked me what I was shooting at, and I told them straight up. I said, I have no idea. I just knew that he wasn't in, wasn't at the door of the house. He wasn't at the garage. His most likely place was going to be inside the car. So my thought process was kind of on the side of, well, I've got the weapon system to at least delay this guy's movements or whatever he's going to do. Suppress a fire. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of what it was. Uh, you know, I'd like to say that's what my plan was, but that was not it at all. It was more on the side of panic fire on the, on some level because – I didn't know where he was. I just knew that I heard a lot of gunfire going on and it wasn't like reckless abandon. I wasn't just throwing rounds down range. I mean, they were a very controlled, controlled volley of, of ammunition. Um, but the other part that I failed on was as soon as I fired that first volley of rounds, I failed to follow through and I dropped my muzzle of my, of my rifle down to assess. And then, you know, knucklehead was still alive and he fired three rounds back at me. And then that's when everything, all hell broke loose for me because then I realized, wait a second, this isn't, they didn't talk about this in a brochure here, you know. Um, nobody's ever shot back at me before like that. So, you know, then my options started to very quickly appear. It's like, well, what do I do? Do I stand here and try again or do I run away or do I, you know, I had no place to go for cover. So basically just moved offline a little bit and came back up for a second volley. And... I've listened to the audio multiple times. I had an earpiece, and I will tell you that the the ending of the entire thing, I fired a total of 22 rounds out of my rifle. I did not hear one single round go off. I didn't hear one single transmission on the radio. But from somewhere between 30 and 35 yards away, I could see and hear the guy's glass from the van hitting the ground. Now, you know, I don't have any idea why that is. I've heard one good answer as to why that is, and that was... That's what your brain needed to know at the time. Yes. Great. Okay. Thank God. You know, and now I finally figured that out. And there were so many things like, even now I still don't know the sequence of events that happened out there. I still can't put it back together because I was so wrapped up in what was going on and that, that fight or flight and that survival mode, you know, and, uh, having to save, you know, my own life first and then trying to figure out how I save everybody else's lives which, you know, again, I, I feel like I failed in that portion. Um, and then, you know, going to the next level, you know, I sometimes I have to kind of look back and, and joke about it a little bit. It's like, well, this is a situation, you know, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor talks about, you know, this is a situation now where we have to be brave, you know, and I didn't like that one bit. You know, like, wait a second. Now, all the other times I've I've been involved with stuff, it's like, okay, when the target turns, raise and fire two rounds, and then that's it. Well, I did that, and it didn't work. Now I've got to think, and now I've actually got to do something. And I was like, oh, man, wait a second, hang on. 
and I'm going to take the opportunity now to throw out a plug to the, to the training staff, especially the rifle guys up at Ben Avery, because those guys, I believe, really did a phenomenal job of training me to, to the level of where I needed to go to the next level, if you will, to, to take care of business, if you will. Um, so, um, pretty sure bad guy was, he was still sitting in the front seat of the car. Pretty sure he was dead. And, uh, I know Joe and I had our little, our little confrontation beside, uh, beside David patrol car. And, uh, that's a story probably for another time, but, uh, <laughs> um, we talk about it now and there, there are a lot of events that occurred on the scene that didn't come back for several weeks, several months, and even, you know, a year or so later that, that finally hit me, you know, and I, again, I, since I can't put it all back together because there were so many different things going on that my brain just won't let me compute if that makes any sense. No, it it makes Um, complete sense. Uh, in my shooting, talking about your brain allows you to process what you need, that fight or flight that kicks in that Jason. So at, um, perfectly talks about, um, the, all these shootings, you don't hear the gunshot yet. You go to a range to, to shoot your gun. If you don't have your earphones on, <laughs> you know it. Uh, so it's a, the brain's an amazing thing. But in talking about your brain, um, how are you today? Well, you know, today I'm fine. Um, I do PowerPoint presentations, and I've been all over the country now, as it turns out, which wasn't really a plan. I knew, I knew that I needed to, to talk about this. And the primary reason, probably number one through five reasons that I wanted to do this for, because I, I refused to let Dave's legacy die. You know, I didn't want anybody to, to not remember him for what he represented, you know, and I talked to a really good friend of mine about that and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's never going to happen. And I said, look, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but, and you know, God rest his soul, you know, after Dave was, was killed, you know, how did we get past that and how when was the last time anybody ever talked about John Hobbs, you know, because now after David's been killed, John has been kind of put on the back burner and I refuse to let that happen with Dave. And probably because, you know, he was a sister squad mate, you know, we're on the same team and I was there on the scene and all these other things. I'm much more involved um, than I was with John's. I wasn't on John's scene, but that's exactly what I was talking about. It's like, and my buddy, another net team guy, really good dude. uh, He started crying. He goes, God, you're exactly right. You know, and again, that's why I had to continue on with this. So the first, you know, one through five were for Dave. And then for me to, to be able to try to get past all this whole thing. And in addition to that, help other guys realize that, Hey man, you can be a rock star cop on the street and still get your ass handed to you, which is exactly what happened to me and Joe and a lot of the other guys that were on that scene. I love how you talk about helping others. And uh, I, I think that's a perfect segue to uh, bring Kristen back in uh, because she's taking this horrific, horrible, worst day in your life. You know, there's t- people that out there that um, can't tell you the worst day of their life. Um, and then there's those who can. And Kristen is one of those. Uh, but she's taken uh, that worst day of her life and has uh, created a foundation. And uh, Kristen, again, thank you so much for not just being here and, and putting up with us as we talk about this horrific day. But to give tribute and how you continue to honor your husband with this foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And if I can just touch on something, Chris said real quick, um, because I want them to know and reassure hundred, I'm a hundred percent confident that everybody who was out there that day did exactly what they needed to do and did it all to the best of their ability. Um, the only person I blame in the situation is the gentleman in the vehicle. God bless you. Um, and fortunately, I was able to, it took some time, but I was able to meet with the fire um, fighters and, and some of the officers that were there that day and, and let them know that. I'm so thankful for all the actions that they took. The um, fact that they were able to help Dave to get him to the hospital to allow us to be there and say our goodbyes um, is something I will always appreciate. Um, as hard as that was to be there and see him and have those moments, it would have been a hundred times harder if I never got to see him. So, um, so thankful for what everybody did do out there. I have no doubt that uh, that's huge uh, for Joe and Chris and all the people, including that FTO, um, that field training officer that was out there. Mm-hmm. 
and and the fact that not only for me selfishly wanting to have those last moments with him, but that he was able to be an organ donor, um, and I've gotten the information on how many lives he was able to save, and and that's beautiful. I've gotten some personal letters from a few of them, wow. and um, how you know wonderful and great their lives are now because of it. So um, even though we didn't get the outcome that we wanted that day, um, there was still a lot of good that came from it. A lot of heroism. Um, so the foundation, we started um, not too long after he passed. It was, took about a year to really get it into place. But uh, myself and a lot of our closest friends just felt the need to really do something positive. Um, it got a lot of attention, and, and we wanted to make sure that we turned it into something not tragic. So um, we did create the foundation with the idea. At the time, there were a lot of tensions between officers and um, public and that was in the media a lot Um, so we really wanted to focus on something where we could build positive relationships between officers and the community and specifically kids i i my background is education and teaching so i know that big kid yes (laughs) and that's where it starts really is with the kids so we've been really fortunate to have a lot of support from the community um, and been able to do a lot of really cool events that have gotten the officers out there with kids we've focused in Levine, specifically the neighborhood that David um, died in. Um, Because our hope is if we can provide those opportunities and kids can see officers in a positive way, that hopefully in the future we can prevent something else like this happening. I love it. I love it. And I know David was a big sports fan. Cardinals was involved, and they're talking. Uh, And there's a program about kids and sports. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the, Dave was huge in sports. I mean, he loved them. Our son loves them just them. like him. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we were very competitive, so anytime we played something, it didn't go well. But, um, yeah, so we knew that sports, obviously, is very important to kids' development, and Dave was all about that and wanted to make sure our kids were, were involved in those, too. So I, we wanted to add that into the foundation. We thought, what better way than to get officers involved with kids with sports? Um, so we partnered with Levine Youth Sports, and we've had a couple um, youth basketball leagues now and a couple of flag football tournaments. Um, and the officers get out there and play, and they're there to hand out the trophies at the end of the season, and it's just been a great, great thing. I love this. I love how we've transitioned into where we're at now. There's no moving on, but there is still giving to the community and, and honoring his name. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring in my, my buddy cohort in crime, uh, Jason, uh, to weigh in on this as we close it out, my friend. Oh, thank you to everybody. This has just been incredible. I still remember the day it happened, and I've been with the Phoenix Police Department since 1999, and I've uh, been on the scene of several deaths. I've been on the scene of uh, I actually went to two officer autopsies, uh, Jason Wolf and David Uribe, and I've seen the emotional side of it. But I remember for some reason this day really had a, a big impact on me, and I've uh, I talked to Chris about it before. And just uh, to be able to honor everybody uh, and Kristen, the, the gift of life that David gave, I traveled the country. My life was saved with tissue donation. And I travel all around to a lot of the organ and tissue donation places and hear these stories. And it is a constant theme throughout law enforcement that when an officer is killed in the line of duty, uh, more times than not, they turn out to be an organ donor and other people out there living good quality lives because of them. So how you continue to honor him, how you are as a mom and uh, Chris and Joe, truly, I can't imagine what you saw, what you went through, and uh, just glad to hear your voices today and to take the time to come on me and Darren's show really is humbling. It means the world to me. God bless all of you guys, and uh, it just makes me, well, I'm here to give a speech in Minneapolis in a couple hours, and it will just give me so much inspiration to go out there and share my story and remember uh, all the reasons I'm grateful that uh, we have what we have. Cannot thank you enough, Jason, for that. It was profound. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Chris. And most of all, thank you, Kristen. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. 
I remember the moment. I remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Wow, Darren, that was profound. As I sit here in my hotel room in Minneapolis, just uh, listening to Kristen and Joe and Chris. And again, I've met with Chris face to face, and we've talked about that day. And you can hear in his voice the guilt he carries, the grief he still has, the questions he still has of himself, and. This is what you don't see on the news. What you don't hear about is the aftermath and the effects. It is an incredible tragedy that David uh, is dead and his children will be without him. But there is just so many pieces uh, that get left in the wake of a tragedy like this. So thank you for bringing everybody on. I hope we did a a nice tribute uh, and, and never forget David, and uh, with that being said, I think it is very timely. I want to defer my heroic headline this week to you, my friend, because you have found something poignant, important, and I think it goes along the lines of uh, just what we need to do with supporting and changing the the dialogue with law enforcement. So uh, with that, please take it away. Absolutely, my friend. Uh, what I'm t- what uh, Jason's talking about is a op-ed that uh, our Attorney General of the United States uh, wrote in regards to disrespect to police officers. Uh, the uh, title, Rising Disrespect for Cops, not only wrong, it puts us in danger. Uh, dated December 16, 2019. Serving as a cop in America is harder than ever, and it comes down to respect. A deficit of respect for the men and women in blue who daily put their lives on the line for the rest of us is hurting recruitment and retention and placing communities at risk. This month, Sergeant Christopher Brewster of the Houston police department was shot and killed while responding to a domestic violence call. Several hours later, that same day, officer Stephen Carr of Arkansas Fayetteville police department was ambushed and executed while sitting in his patrol vehicle. Last week, Detective Joseph Seals was shot and killed by those who carried out the Jersey City Massacre. There is no tougher job in the country than serving as a law enforcement officer. Every morning, officers across the country get up, kiss their loved ones, and put on their protective vests. They head out on patrol, never knowing what threats and trials they will face. And their families endure restless nights so we can sleep peacefully. Policing is only getting harder. Police officers are now required to handle the fallout from a vast range of social pathologies that were once the domain of social workers, psychologists, and family members, such as mental illness, widespread homelessness, and drug abuse. Even more demoralizing, police officers must look on as the criminals that they have risked their lives to apprehend get turned loose by, quote, social justice, end quote, DAs and progressive judges who no longer see their role as protecting the community from the predators. Some DAs have even exposed police officers to greater danger by announcing that they will not prosecute those who resist police. Increasingly, police officers find themselves the subject of physical attacks. Assaults against police officers jumped 20% from 2014 to 2017, up to about 60,000 a year. While policing is demanding, is uniquely rewarding. Law enforcement is a noble calling, and we are fortunate to, that there are still men and women of character willing to serve selflessly so that their fellow citizens can live securely. The fight against crime is perpetual. There is no final victory. The end is never in sight. 
To wage these struggles takes a special kind of fortitude. It takes its toll. Officers are at a higher risk of suicide than members of any other profession. The number of officer suicides is more than triple that of the deaths in the line of duty. Attorney General Barr continues on, and in closing, he says, when we show our respect and appreciation for our police, it says more about our love of liberty and justice than perhaps any other act. William Barr, Attorney General, United States. And with that, I'm going to forego the usual stupid suspect story. It's just not appropriate. And I'm going to have my dear friend, Jason Sheckley, close the show with his beautiful, inspirational message. That was an awesome letter. I love uh, Attorney General Barr, and uh, that's very profound. I think it's, it's very important. I often tell the recruits at the academy, the new recruits, uh, you know, you guys all have a chance. You're in a down cycle right now. You all have a chance to 10, 15, 20 years now to look back and be part of getting everything back on the upswing because it will cycle back. But when you touch on the the suicides and the line of duty deaths and then the other things, you know, guys turn to alcohol, drugs, a divorce rate, everything. I think right now it's important. We're a week away. One week from today is Christmas, and then it's not only a new year, but a new decade. And I just encourage everybody out there, whether in law enforcement or not, if you feel yourself struggling, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Don't be ashamed of any type of PTS, no matter what you've been through. Embrace your loved ones. Be thankful for what you have. Be grateful for everything you've gone through that got you where you're at today. And uh, I just want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas. Never forget David Glasser, his widow, his kids, and all of the officers that were out there that day that tried to save him and now have to live on with the memories of that day and fight their own fight with scars that you're never going to see just by looking at them. So God bless all of you. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will talk to you very, very soon. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.